that is a very uh, fitting hymn to sing as we conclude our study this morning on John chapter 17, known as the High Priestly Prayer of our Lord and Savior. It is, as we have noted, and I hope in these studies you have come to see, that it really is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible, because it really is the only place that we are given a place to listen in on the conversation that the eternal Son of God has with his Father in heaven. It is God the Son speaking to God the Father. And because this prayer was prayed by Jesus aloud, it means it was recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by those who heard him. And we, as it were, have had the incredible privilege of simply sitting by and listening as they did in person to Jesus speak to his father. J.C. Ryle says it's a wonderful specimen of the communion that was ever kept up between the father and son during the period of the son's ministry on earth. This prayer represents something we know to be true, especially Luke tells us that The one thing that Jesus did most often that Luke writes about is that he went away and he prayed. This is the only place we have that prayer so clearly recorded for us. Over the past several weeks, of course, we've tried to to plumb the depths of these words, which we know no line can truly fathom. And so this morning we want to look at it one more time as a whole, We're going to kind of review it in an overview way to remind ourselves of the things that we've studied. And my hope is that we would be encouraged once again of our Savior's care for us as we live in this in-between time between his first and second coming. While he has already gone into heaven before us, as he did with his own disciples to prepare a place for us, What we know because of this prayer and because of our other studies is that he is now praying for us, the very things that we're going to read and study this morning. And he will continue to do so because it is the way in which we might say, as we've just sung, it's the way in which he holds us fast by his faithful prayer for us. And so turn to John 17, as we did in the very beginning of our study. We're going to stand and listen to God's word. I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. It's not very long. And as you hear it and listen to it, please, we pray together that God would richly bless his word to our hearing. Again, we have a front row seat to hear our Savior speaking to his Father on our behalf. Let us hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for these many weeks we have been in this study and now once more to review all that we have learned, to be reminded of the faithfulness of our Savior, to be comforted in the assurance that he will indeed hold us fast, that he prays for us even now is our great comfort and joy. Please bless your word then as we study it together, as we move through this passage once again, guide us in all that we do that we, your people, would be sanctified more and more by the truth of your word, and that you would be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Despite the appearance of time simply repeating itself from one generation to another, As many religions will tell us that life is cyclical, just goes round and round, and many people believe that today, 
The Bible, of course, is very clear that time and life are moving in a very clear direction to an end, moving from one point to a final end. Life and time, we know, are linear according to the Bible. God has a great purpose and a great plan. As the great Isaac Watts hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, puts it, time is moving in a line to a destination like a wide and flowing stream. Time, he wrote, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. And we are all, as we sit here this morning, somewhere on that line, somewhere on that road, in perfect accordance with God's plan, as Acts 17 tells us, that he has purposed and planned every, for every one of us, the very places where we're going to live, the very times in which we live. But all of that is slowly but surely moving to that great end, the great purpose of God. Now, this is the way the Apostle Paul speaks of it. As he writes at the, uh, towards the end of that great chapter in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 on the resurrection, you may remember these words, I trust you do, but as he argues that there is indeed great hope for us because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he says this, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's the end to which all of time is moving. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of that same end and of this delivering of the kingdom to his father when he quotes Isaiah and when he says the Messiah will say on that great day, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Now that kingdom, that people, and that children are of course the saints called by God and gathered into one body. In the language of our text from John 17, as we see the Father and the Son speaking about this kingdom, this people, they are all those whom the Father has given to the Son. The Son will deliver back to the Father on that great day, having secured their salvation through his eternal work. Time is moving to that great and glorious end. We all know that. We all sense that as time moves on, it seems as you grow older, ever faster, ever more quickly with each day. It's already October. It's almost Christmas again. It's crazy how time is moving, but it's moving to an end. And the Bible calls us to be sober-minded as it moves to that great and glorious end. But between now and then, however long it is before the Lord returns... We who belong to Jesus by faith and by grace are pilgrims in this life. We're aliens and strangers in the world. Jesus says that we're not of the world any longer because we have been transferred to a new citizenship, which is in heaven. In the language of John Bunyan's classic work, we are pilgrims who have fled the city of destruction by the grace of God. Only by his mercy have been, we, we've been made known and aware 
uh, in our minds that this world will be destroyed because of sin and God's judgment upon it. But we fled that city of destruction by his grace and we're on the path, we're on the road to the celestial city. One writer who wrote about John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, which we have strongly, of course, recommended to all of you to read, to make sure during your lifetime that you read Pilgrim's Progress, gives us a reason why he says we should all read it. And this is what he writes, and I think this is so true. I know I can certainly testify to it. I'm sure you can as well. He said, I relate to Christian because I am one. Both his victories and failures are very familiar to me. I have carried a burden of guilt and sin on my back, which could only be removed at the cross of Christ. I have fallen into the slough of despond, and I have been pulled out by help. I have been in Doubting Castle, tormented by giant despair, and I have found my way out of giant despair's dungeon with the key of promise. I have lost my role through spiritual slothfulness. I have encountered Apollyon's darts as thick as hail while in the valley of humiliation, and I have found great strength through other believers, just as Christian did in Faithful. Bunyan's story, he says, is my story. It's about my life. It's about every Christian's life. Well, what we've been learning in John 17 is that we are not alone in this journey. We know that. We know that because the Bible tells us in every place that Jesus promises to be with us by his spirit. And he is faithful to that promise. Not only do we have fellow pilgrims traveling with us in this path and this road, but we have a king and a savior who is guiding us. And as we've been studying, who even now is making faithful intercession for us. And so what I want to do this morning as we look at this one more time in John 17 is very much focused on what I believe the whole point of this prayer is. As I've mentioned, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said in his great work on this prayer, he titled his book, his study of John 17, The Assurance of Our Salvation. Now, I hope as you've seen and we've gone through the study of these verses you can see why he writes that and why he says this prayer is all about giving to believers the true assurance of their salvation. And looking over this prayer as a whole, I want to keep this question in mind. And it really is for our assurance to answer this question well. Will there ever be a time when our Savior will not be praying for us? Will his faithful intercession for us ever end? I want us to see this morning as we look again at this prayer that he is indeed faithful for us, even as he is doing right now, since the Bible says he always lives now to make intercession for us. So what I want to do is look at these three sections again. You remember that the, the prayer is divided into three sections. One through five, Jesus prays for himself. In 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, those whom the Lord gave to him. And, and we've said rightly by implication that those prayers he prays in those verses are for us as well. That, that that's not exclusively for them. The target is them. The focus is them because of the, their being the foundation of the church. 
the Lord is praying for them especially, but the, the ideas in those verses, he prays for us as well. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays specifically for us and for all who would believe because of their witness. And so we see this connection throughout the, our study so far in these three parts. And I really want to highlight really the qualities of our Savior that we see in each of these sections. Because I believe it really is the person of Jesus focused on in these verses as he prays that comes to the forefront of our minds when we think about our assurance. Our assurance of faith is rooted in a person and his gracious work for us. And so we need to see Jesus in these verses. And that's really my hope this morning as we continue to travel this pilgrim road together. So look at me with me at verses 1 through 5. And here I think and believe that we see here in verses 1 through 5 a faithful Savior. We see a faithful Savior. Now I focus on this part in this way, even though the whole of the prayer exhibits his faithfulness to everything that God has promised. But I especially see it here because I think the focus of these verses because he is not praying for his disciples or for us, but rather interacting with his father and with his father sort of rehearsing the history of redemption and what he has come to do. That is why I think the emphasis here really is on his faithfulness. You see, what Jesus behind the scenes in verses 1 through 5 is referring to is this great covenant between the Father and the Son, often called, as we've noted before, the covenant of redemption. It is the promise of Jesus to accomplish a work that the Father has given him to do in accordance with the Father's purpose and plan to save a people for himself. Out of the mass of humanity, sinful and fallen, the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into this covenant of redemption. It's really all throughout the text. Remember, we studied and we noted that the language that Jesus the Son and Jesus the Father use as they talk about us, those who believe in Christ, who are called of God, elected and chosen before the foundation of the world, is always in terms of that covenantal language. Those whom the Father has given to me, Jesus says. Those whom you have given to me, Father. Those whom I'm, later he says, I'm going to present back to you. This is a group of people redeemed by Christ, and they talk about it in this covenantal way. And so when Jesus goes through these verses, as we read them, his desire is to glorify the Father. You saw that. As I read it, we, we saw it as we studied it. His desire is to faithfully be obedient to what the Father has given to him so that the Father would be glorified. Even his own prayer that he himself would be glorified through the work that he's about to do is to the end and purpose that God himself, the Father, would be glorified that the whole of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be magnified and glorified in this time. And so really, what is at the forefront here is the faithfulness of Jesus. You see that especially, I think, in verse 4, 
I glorified you on earth, he says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus speaks, as it were, in in past tense. It's on the eve of his betrayal, his death, his burial, his torture on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. It's on the eve of all of that, but he's looking down to that and all that will happen. And he says, it's already done. So faithful is our Savior. He gave voice to this, of course, we know in the famous words on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The work that the Father gave him to do on behalf of all of those whom the Father has given to the Son. Jesus, our Savior, is a faithful Savior. His aim, purpose, his sole desire is to bring glory to his Father. J.C. Ryle, as he considers these verses, writes this, which I think are very helpful for us to consider. Forever, he writes, let us thank God that the hope of the Christian rests on such a solid foundation as a faithful, divine Savior. He to whom we are commanded to flee for pardon and in whom we are bid to rest in peace is God as well as man. To all who really think about their souls and are not careless and worldly, the thought is full of comfort. Such people know and feel that great sinners need a great Savior and that no mere human redeemer would meet their needs. Then let them rejoice in Christ and lean back confidently on him. Christ has all power and he is able to save to the uttermost. He is a faithful Savior to all that the Father committed to his charge to do for those whom he had given to him. And you see that in these first five verses, the faithfulness of our Savior. Now, as we move to the other two points that follow, one on each of the remaining sections, I want to mention something just briefly, and I hope it's not a distraction. I really don't want it to be. I really want it to reinforce what we've studied. But there are several commentators, and it's amazing how each commentator, each writer, everyone who preaches through John 17 may approach it slightly differently. But there are several commentators, when they look at the next two sections, 6 through 19, 20 through 26, focus on what they believe are the marks of the church. Now, we often think of the marks of a true church as being the faithful preaching of God's word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and proper church discipline. Those are the marks of a true church. And we often tell people, when you're looking for churches, you want to look for churches that hold those marks and have them. But but here they're talking about the marks here of the church as Jesus prays and uh, sort of references them in these. And they say that there are four marks in the first section, 6 through 19, and two in the second. So as we go through this, I'm going to just briefly make mention of those. I think you'll see we've touched on every one of them. But I think it's helpful to review as we go through Uh, So the first section is a faithful Savior. The second one is a sanctified Savior, a sanctified Savior in verses 6 through 19. Now, I, I quickly want to remind us that that doesn't mean that Jesus was lacking in holiness. 
that he somehow needed to be made holy. Remember, in the language of the prayer itself, you see it in verse 18, or verse 19, I should say, of this section. And for their sake, he says, I consecrate myself. That's the same word that he uses in verse 17 when he prays for his disciples that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. It's a word we understand that means to be set apart, right? It's not merely that it is making holy something that is not, but, but it is a setting apart. And when Jesus prays in verse 19, which I believe is the central focus of this section, that he has consecrated or sanctified himself, he has set himself apart to this work, I think this underscores really our assurance that our Savior is not only faithful, but that he has set himself apart for this work. Now, in this section, as you think of those marks that I just mentioned, not to be a distraction, we see four of them in this section. We see joy in verse 13, that his joy might be fulfilled in them. We see holiness in verse 17, sanctify them, set them apart as holy. That is true of us with respect to the work that God does in our lives, making us in Christ holy. We see truth, which is another mark of a true church, right? The truth of God is that which he uses to sanctify us. We only grow in holiness as we grow in our knowledge and obedience to the word of God. And then in verse 18, we see this mark of the church being mission, that Christ sends us out. And you see that in verse 18. As you, Father, have sent me into the world... So I send them into the world. They will uniquely be his witnesses in the world. And our faith is rooted and founded upon their witness and the truth of God in his word. But you see, none of this, these marks, joy, holiness, truth, mission, none of these marks are possible unless our Savior, as he says in verse 19, was willing to set himself apart unto this work. Jesus here, as the early church father Chrysostom says, sees in this statement of our Savior a willingness to fulfill the law by offering himself up as both the sacrifice and the priest in order that he might sanctify his people. See that in verse 19, he says, I consecrate, sanctify myself, that they also, in order that they also might be sanctified in truth. He set himself apart for this work, for that great end and purpose. And we see this really throughout the Bible, don't we? Titus in chapter 2, verse 14 says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then, couples, you remember the teaching of our recent retreat as we went and spent that weekend together in Ephesians 5, verse 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
You see, because he himself set himself apart for this work in obedience to his father to be both the sacrifice, the spotless lamb, as well as the priest who offers the sacrifice, all that he speaks here with respect to his own disciples and by application, all who would believe is only possible and true. It's because he did that. The fact that they will manifest or that he manifested the father's name to them through his teaching, his work. He gave them, he says several times throughout this prayer, he gave them the father's words. You see, all of that is possible because he set himself apart for this, keeping them in the father's name, losing none but the son of perdition, keeping them from the evil one for which he prays is only possible because he set himself apart as holy unto the father for this unique work. Sanctifying them by the word of truth is the very end and purpose of why he consecrated or sanctified himself. Sending them into the world is rooted as well in the fact that he was set apart and now he sets us apart and sends us into a world who needs to hear the message of the gospel. You see, it's all in these words. It is for their sake, verse 19. It's for their sake, for my disciples' sake, that I consecrate and sanctify myself. You see, you don't have assurance of salvation. You don't have the comfort that the Lord uh, promises us unless you have a Savior who was willing to set himself apart to this work. And, of course, the first point, to be faithful in doing it. We can rejoice this morning because not only do we have a faithful Savior, but we have a sanctified Savior who was willing to stand in the place of sacrifice and priest for our sakes. But that's not all. We have one more section. It's important for us to see this as well. We have in this final section a glorious Savior. We have a glorious Savior Now, the theme of glory, as you have seen as I read the whole prayer, is really throughout the prayer. It's in the beginning, his desire to be glorified, his desire to have his father glorified. But in this final section, it seems to me, especially as we look at verse 24 once again, we have really the focus of this prayer for his people. The theme of glory is prominent when he prays, Father, I desire or I will that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This glory, of course, is that glory which he received from the Father because of his work. Philippians 2 says this. His work is mediator. This, This is not that they might simply behold the glory of Christ as he possesses by nature because he's God. That glory is always his. In a sense, it was veiled in his ministry, uh, briefly revealed in the transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. But, But this glory we noted in our study, this glory that he desires them to see, is that extra glory, if you will, that he receives at the Father's hand. As Philippians 2 says, God, therefore, because of his willingness to submit himself, because of his setting himself apart, 
sanctifying himself as our priest and sacrifice. God has therefore highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This entire section, uh, this last section, as it focuses on the glory of our Savior, is really, as John Knox once said, his people are being caught up into the love and the glory that exists within the Father and the Son. And that is so very true, that we are really being caught up. You, you see that throughout his prayer, that, that I may be in them as you are in me and I in you, this intimate connection that the Father and Son have. Jesus desires that we would be so caught up into that, the love and the glory that belong to him and to the Father. But that leads then to a real question as we think about this practically. How is that glory, which he desires for us to see, how is it now manifested? Because it surely is in the world today. Well, you remember, here are the other marks of the six. We saw the first four, but here are the other marks that commentators point out. It's seen in our unity. It is seen in our love. Those two marks Jesus spoke very clearly of in the greatest sermon that he gave prior to this, the greatest prayer that he ever prayed. That the love between believers, between those who are in Christ, would be the mark by which the world will know that we belong to him. Jesus prays in these verses that he desires the world to know that he was sent from the Father. And so in this sense, by the unity that we display as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, a unity which, remember, God has established already in Christ, but that we are called to maintain, to fight for, if you will. And then a love that we are called to exhibit one to the other to demonstrate that Jesus has been sent from the Father, that all that he taught is true, and that as we go out into the world demonstrated by our love for one another, we bear witness of that relationship between the Father and Son and all that the Father and Son has purposed to do in saving of sinners. You see how it all fits together. Jesus, as a glorious Savior, full of glory, is calling us to exhibit even now that glory through his body in the world, the church, through unity and through love. They are really marks of a true church to dwell together in unity, to maintain the unity of the spirit, Paul says, in the bond of peace and to love one another. That's how the glory to be revealed on that day where he desires that we be with him to see it is exhibited right now. These three points, I think, form for us what really is the ground and foundation of our assurance as we remember that our Savior is always making intercession for us. He is a faithful Savior, he's a sanctified Savior, and he is a glorious Savior. 
Now, as we close out then the entire study and move on from this to other studies in the future, I want to leave us with three things, I think, that are very helpful for us to take from this study. The first one really relates to our assurance, and that is that we are, and I hope you have seen this throughout, we are securely his. We are securely his. This language, and I've, I've been stunned by it as I've gone through this study. I've, I've been marveling at it ever since we began. The way in which the Father and the Son speak about us has always been, for me, the most striking part of this prayer. They talk about us as a gift given from the Father to the Son, and a gift that the Son, having secured their salvation in obedience to the Father's plan, will present back to the Father. That's a marvelous thing, and I want you to see in that that there's a security there. There's no loss of any part of that gift. It is set, the Father having chosen a people and given to the Son, the Son having died in the place of that people for their sins to take their punishment and securing their salvation and giving them back to the Father in glory and in praise. It's the way the Bible speaks about us in every place if we're careful to listen and watch. So we really are securely his. This, this prayer, this listening of the disciples to what Jesus prayed, I believe firmly is what led to their later writings as they write, as Paul writes, as he learns these things from the apostles of what Jesus taught. As Peter writes, as John writes, they write about this eternal security. I mean, Romans 8 is rooted in this prayer because Jesus speaks of us as those who are given by the Father. No one, he says in John 10, will be able to take them out of my hand. I give them, he says, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, if we are in the hands of the Father, the hands of the Son, we are securely his, and we cannot be lost for those of us who are in Christ. Now, if you've never come to understand the gospel and the love of God to sinners, in Jesus Christ, then there is no security. There is only what the Bible refers to as a carnal security, a confidence in our own works, and that will not carry the day on the day of judgment. The only way to be secure in who we are and secure in our place in heaven is to be secure in him. And the only way that happens is by believing the gospel and trusting in what Jesus has done for sinners like us. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones nails it when he says this in his great work again, whatever then you may be doing, put this in the forefront of your mind. Think about it in a way that you have never done before. Never let a day pass, but that you remind yourself of who and what you are. You are one of God's people. They were yours and you gave them to me. And I have done for them the work that you gave me to do. And I am coming back to you, Jesus says, 
Father, I will that they also whom you have given to me may be there with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Hold that. Hold that before yourself day by day. Start your day with it. Remind yourself of it constantly that you are securely his. Secondly, it speaks, I believe, this prayer of life's great purpose. Who am I? What does all of this mean? What is my purpose in living? Our Westminster Catechism, of course, provides in its first question and answer a wonderful foundational answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But this prayer does that. It orients our whole lives. It reminds us of what is most important for us in this life, those whom he has redeemed and called us to in newness of life. Go through this prayer devotionally. Ask yourself as you go through it, what is Jesus saying as he prays to the Father? Because listen, most of this prayer is concerned about you and me and all of those who will be called of Christ. That's what this prayer is about. He's praying for us. So what is it that he prays? And how does it teach us about what's most important in life? When you do that, you'll see things like this. that You and I are called to glorify him in all things. We're called to walk in holiness of life. We're called to know God and his word and through his word. We're called to love the brethren. We're called to bear witness of Christ to the world. We're called to know his great love for us, a love that is no different than the love he has for his own son. We're called to live as citizens of heaven in this world, which is no longer our home. We're called to know the joy of our salvation, even in the midst of the most trying of times. And we're called to guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what he prays for. This is your purpose. This is why you exist. This is why I exist. That we might in all things glorify the father who has called us and for whom the son has died. And this prayer, we've said, is effectual. This is what God is doing as he continues to guide us. And then thirdly and finally, it speaks of our comfort as pilgrims in this life. This is really where I want to end our study this morning with the comfort of knowing that as we travel in this pilgrim land, we can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus, our Savior, is praying for us that we might persevere in our assurance. Now, how do we do that with all that is against us? An enemy who seeks to steal away all that God has done, the world which is opposed to Christ and to those increasingly so who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we to do that? We do that by looking to our Savior, who is faithful, sanctified, and glorious, and who has accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. I began with an illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to end with it as well. There is a great part in Pilgrim's Progress that really, I think, gives us the key. And it's easy to miss if you kind of miss that section where he goes to Interpreter's House. But one writer says that Pilgrim's Progress is really about the perseverance of the saint Bunyan might well have entitled his book, The Pilgrim's Perseverance, for that is its theme. 
The story of Christian's dangerous journey illustrates the perseverance of every true Christian. The Christian life is a series of battles which must be fought in the strength of Christ. There will be failures just as Christian fell into the slough of despond, sinfully listened to worldly wise man, was wounded by Apollyon and locked in Doubting Castle. But just like Bunyan's pilgrim, each obstacle is eventually overcome and progress is made in one's journey to the celestial city. And there's a very clever and very clear picture of why that perseverance prevails. As Christian goes and is taken to interpreter's house, he sees a fire burning against a wall and one standing by it always, casting much water upon it to quench it. And yet the fire burns higher and hotter. Again, Bunyan writes, he asks interpreter, what does this mean? Interpreter answers, the fire is the work of God's grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. And then interpreter takes him to the backside of the wall to show him why the fire burns higher and hotter rather than going out. There, Christian sees a man with a vessel of oil which he continually but secretly casts on the fire. And the interpreter says, this is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by means of which notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. That is a beautiful picture of the reality of our lives the reality of our lives that because of Christ, we are kept. Because of Christ, our assurance does not wax and fail. Because of Christ, the road which is often difficult, the enemy strong, we are nonetheless because of him kept safe and secure from all alarms. You know, I think we have, as you read that wonderful book, Some Freedom, to see sometimes a variety of things in the imagery that Bunyan uses. Most rightly would conclude that this picture that he sees in Interpreter's House is probably taken from Zechariah chapter 4, when he sees the golden lamp stand in the fires burning. It's most likely a reference to the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people, no doubt. But I wonder if we cannot also say that what is happening behind the scenes of our lives, whether we're conscious of it or not, is that this picture can also relate to everything we've just studied regarding Jesus praying for us. It's because he prays for you and me that we press on. He's praying for your protection from the evil one. He's praying for your sanctification and growth in grace by the word. He's praying for your joy to be fulfilled, his joy to be fulfilled in you. He's praying that your faith would not fail in the most difficult of trials. He's praying for our unity as a church, not only local but worldwide, our unity as one body by one spirit. He's praying that even now we would behold his glory in what he has done in each of our lives. He's praying that we might love one another, even as we are so deeply loved by him. And all of this will never stop. He will bring us safely home as he promised. 
you know that the last part of Pilgrim's Progress ends with Christian and Hopeful being carried by the shining ones, angels, into heaven, where they are told of the glories that await them. But I always found it interesting that we're never told that they actually meet the king or interact directly with him. They're simply told this, you're going now, they said, to the paradise of God, wherein you will see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruit thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes that are given to you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. What a wonderful picture and a promise. I wouldn't dare say that we can improve upon Bunyan's work this morning. But as we come to the end of our study in John 17, I can't help wonder if we might imagine that when we get to heaven, we might hear something like this. Welcome, one so dearly loved. You are safe now because I have prayed you all the way home. All the way home here to where I am, I have prayed for you so that you might arrive safely. And suddenly we will see everything as it really is. And we will know that all through our journey, no matter how difficult the road has been, our Savior prayed for us. He walked with us and he carried us all the way home. So I begin this morning, I began by saying that we have to keep questions in mind as we study this passage. Will there ever be a time when our Savior will not be praying for us? Will his faithful intercession for us ever end? I hope you've seen the answer in our study this morning. His faithful intercession will never end. That is, while we are in this world, traveling as pilgrims to our heavenly home. But there will come a day when his ministry as our faithful high priest will end. This ministry of Jesus as our praying Savior will only end when all are safely home. And then we will live together in our eternal home, no longer needing for him to pray to be kept from the evil one, to be sanctified by the truth. For we will be as he is, and we will behold forever the glory of the one who came for us, who died for us, who lives for us, and who now prays for us. Let us pray. Father, as we conclude this study, encourage our hearts with these truths that we truly might have the assurance of our salvation, not because of what we have done, but because of our ever-living Savior who lives to intercede for us even now until he brings us safely home. Grant us that grace, we pray. And continue that work which you have begun, that your glory through us might be seen and manifested in this world, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.